how do you want to spend your life tomorrow according to your values? What are values? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. This is the number one most dangerous form of distraction, the distraction that tricks you into not even realizing that you're distracted. And this would happen to me every morning for years. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Najahi Events, our awesome new sponsor, Smartcast. You must check them out for sure. More about them later and new sponsors coming as well. Okay, in today's episode, okay, it's going to help you become more efficient, a better version of yourself. It's going to help you create healthy habits, remove unnecessary distractions from your life. Okay, that's what's going to happen. All right, achieving the goals you set for yourself requires you to master focus, but my guest today thinks focus is a little bit Mm, and thinks about it differently. If you're listening to this on iTunes, then please, please, please leave us a five-star rating. I beg of you. Okay, if, you, if you're listening on another podcast app, though, by all means, leave some love. Just share some information with us. You know, tell us if you think it's good. Tell us if you think it's bad. Tell us who you like on the show. Give us some engagement. All that happens if you do that is that then these podcast apps then send this content out to more people so that they can benefit from it too. So you're doing a favor to other people if you value what I produce. Near EL knows that cutting out distractions and getting into a state of flow is the key to success. But rather than referring to it as focus, he refers to it as traction, which is the opposite of distraction. You might recognize Nir's name as the author of the best-selling book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Indistractable received critical acclaim, winning the Outstanding Works of Literature Award, as well as being named one of the best business and leadership books of the year by Amazon. He has lectured in marketing at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and Design and has sold two technology companies since 2003. He combines psychology, technology and business practices to help companies design consumer behavior while educating individuals about behavior change and digital distraction. Today, Nir is going to share with us the science behind his behavioral design theory, ways of fighting back against distractions, and how he helps companies build habit-forming products that improve users' lives. I listened to this book like two years ago, and it was a fantastic book, and it changed a lot about what I did. So I'm really excited to bring him to you today. Cue the music. Well, Nir, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. I have tried to get you for some time, and I'm so lucky that, that a friend in common of ours was able to make the introduction so that we could get you here on the show. I've read your book, you know, I've read Indestructible. I've even read your previous book, Hooked. I think you're fantastic thank at you. what you do. And, um, you know, for anybody listening and watching this right now, if you haven't, then I'm going to make sure you do at the end of this show. But what I, what I want to do today is try and teach you what Nir knows and how he helps people and companies really fix a mindset problem as I see and a behavior problem as I see and get people into the, to the right space. And so where are we going to start? Okay, we're going to start with something called a to-do list. And the reason we're going to start there is that I have for years used to-do lists and it was your book that stopped me. But my to-do list was slightly different because I would always think about my to-do list and I would think, 
write the things down I need to do. But what would actually happen is I'd write all the things I wanted to do first and the things I didn't want to do last. And so I changed it just by turning it upside down every day and starting with the worst things first so that I could then kind of get through the grunge and the grind and look forward to some stuff. Um, I'm told I've got ADHD or ADD. I, I, I find it difficult to focus. I find it difficult to concentrate. I find myself easily distracted. And it's not from the, the ping of the phone or whatever it might be. I just drift off really quickly. And so I want to fix that. And so maybe today we can help fix that. And for a lot of people out there, I'm sure they're not in a too dissimilar position. So what, why, why have we got a problem with to-do lists? Well, we, we can start with that. That's kind of a, a, a controversial gambit to throw down. A lot of people <laughs> love to-do lists. And I was a to-do list devotee for many, many years until I dove into the research around why we get distracted. And I learned that actually to-do lists can be one of the worst things for your personal productivity. And here's why. Just to clarify, first and foremost, I'm not saying that writing things down uh, on a piece of paper or an app, getting them out of your head and, and down somewhere is a bad idea. That's a great idea. The bad part of a to-do list is when people run their life on a to-do list. So when you wake up in the morning, if you look at your to-do list and that's what you do, you've already lost. Because to-do lists have some fundamental problems. Number one, to-do lists have no constraints, right? You can always add more to a to-do list. You just add more and more and more and more. So here's what happens. I call this the tyranny of the to-do list. And this happened to me for years. I would be busy all day long. I'd get to work and I'd do all the things that I think I need to do. And then I'd, I'd come home. I'm exhausted. All I want to do is relax, be with my kids, maybe watch something on Netflix. And I'd look at my to-do list and I'd still have a million things that I didn't finish. And so what does that do to our psyche? What does that do to your self-image? If day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you come home when you're supposed to relax and just take it easy and you see this list of things you still haven't done. Loser. <laughs> That's what it tells you. And so this is where you hear people saying these stupid things like, oh, I'm no good at time management or I have a short attention span or there's something wrong with me. No, there's nothing wrong with you. It's that there's something wrong with this dumb antiquated technique we use that doesn't help us actually get things done. Because the crucial step that people are missing when it comes to keeping a to-do list is when they are going to do those things. So what typically happens, another big problem with to-do lists is that when people look at their to-do list in the first thing in the morning, if they run their life on a to-do list, what do they do? Do they do the big important projects that they need, really should do? No. If you look at what people do who, who are committed to to-do lists, who run their life on a to-do list, they do the easy th stuff, right? Just to check a couple boxes, just to, just to get some momentum. And they do the urgent stuff. They don't do the important stuff and the hard stuff that moves their lives and careers forward. So to-do lists have some fundamental problems with them. Another big problem with it is that when we measure ourselves based on the cute little boxes that we check off, we do tend to do those things that satisfy that itch to just check things off and we do the, the, the urgent and the, the easy stuff. Whereas opposed to people who measure themselves by the right metric, the right metric according to my book, Indistractable, is not to measure yourself by cute little boxes, but rather to measure your productivity, to measure that by whether you did one thing, which is did you do what you said you were going to do for as long as you said you were without distraction, whatever that thing was, whether it was checking email for 30 minutes, whether it was a, a, a focused work session, whether it was being with your kids, did you do just that thing for as long as you said you would in your schedule? Okay, it's got to be in your calendar as opposed to just on your to-do list. Why? Because you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. 
One of the biggest reasons that people get distracted in their day-to-day -day lives is that they run around with a to-do list telling them what to do. They run around with emails and notifications and pings and dings and rings telling them what to do all day when what they should really do is have their calendar tell them what to do. But most people, if they even keep a to-do list, that's all they do. They don't have things in their schedule. What we find is, studies find, here's the kickers, people who measure themselves, their productivity based on solely their ability to work without distraction, not did they finish a task, okay? Not did you check the cute box, but did you simply work on the task without distraction for as long as you said you would? I don't care if it's 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. They finish more than the to-do list people. They actually get more done because the to-do list people, they do the things on the to-do list whenever they feel like it. Indistractable people say, I'm gonna work on this for this amount of time. And now, and here's the biggest reason that to-do lists suck, is that they don't have any feedback mechanism in them. So the reason that most people, we have what's called a planning fallacy. Surveys tell us that on average, a task takes people three times longer to finish than they estimate, three times longer. Why? Because to-do lists have no feedback. You don't know how long things take you because most people, what do they do? Oh, I gotta work on that big project. I gotta work on that presentation. They work on it for five minutes. Oh, I got an email from my boss. Oh, my kids need this, Twitter that, Facebook this, email that. And they work on projects in five little, five minute little increments. And so they just don't get as much done. And so the, the technique that I described in Indistractable, this technique around time boxing, around planning your time and deciding what you're going to do with it, it blows uh, to-do lists out of the water. It's a much, much better technique. Okay. Over the last two years, you've got people that have gone from working in an office to working at home to now being given the choice to whether they want to work in the office, some of them, uh, or, or work from home. Uh, initially, people were thinking, or, or even saying, I'm getting a lot more done working from home. It's a lot more productive. That was kind of like, and for me, first six weeks of lockdown, I'm like, yeah, man, this is so efficient. After then, <laughs> six weeks, it, it kind of went a bit backwards, and I started to get, yeah. found myself getting easily distracted at home. You know, my kids are at university. It's not like they're at home with me. But I was getting sucked into things because I wasn't focused and concentrating like I should. Have you seen a shift yourself in the research that you've done before lockdown, during lockdown, and after lockdown with the behavior of people when it comes to being um, uh, less distracted? Yeah, so the level of distraction, I don't think, has gone up or down by working from home. It's changed. It's different. So when we did surveys about what was the number one source of distraction before COVID, the number one source of distraction for the, the white-collar worker was other people. Other people. It wasn't their phone. It wasn't email. It wasn't Slack. It was their colleague coming by their desk and saying, did you hear that bit of office gossip? Or their boss saying, hey, when am I going to get that TPS report? That was the number one source of distraction. So what happened during COVID when people started working from home? They didn't have their nosy boss constantly pestering them 42 times a day, right? But they did have their kids. <laughs> so what we found is that people who started working from home for a while, it's very, what your experience is very typical. That for a while you say, oh, thank God I'm not interrupted by my boss. And so you, you kind of relish that, that fact, but then very quickly you learn that either you find new potential distractions, like many people now complain about, oh, how do I work from home when my kids or my wife or my roommate is distracting me? And then what eventually happens is that we sink into the number one source of distraction, which is not, that has nothing to do with what we call external triggers at all. So external triggers, are the things in our outside environment that can lead us towards distraction. These are the usual suspects, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment. All those external triggers only account for 10% of the time you get distracted. This is what surveys have found. 
10% of the time. Wow. So what's the other 90%? The other 90% of the time that we get distracted, we get distracted not because of what's happening outside of us, but rather because of what's happening inside our own heads. So 90% of the time we get distracted, we get distracted because of an internal trigger. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, fearfulness, stress, anxiety. This is 90% of the time we get distracted, this is the source. And this is the first step to becoming indistractable. You have to learn how to master these internal triggers or they will become your internal triggers. So what happened is, is to you is very typical. People you know, work from home and say, oh my gosh, look at all the things I don't have to deal with, all the BS I don't have to deal with at home. But then very quickly they realize those internal triggers are still there. And in fact, during the pandemic, that the number of internal triggers we felt per day, right? The uncertainty when we were, you know, going through the worst of it, the fearfulness, the anxiety, this, the, 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 uh, all the, the stress that came from it led, led people to even more distraction because they felt more of those internal triggers. And those who weren't equipped to deal with those internal triggers succumbed to more distraction throughout the day. When we talk about distraction, you, you eloquently describe the opposite of distraction. And we talk about, you know, what we would normally say is focus, you know, get focused, get, you know, get in the zone, as they would say. Yeah. But you describe that differently. Right. Yeah. So I, I really wanted to, to, to start with, you know, first principles, <laughs> right? So uh, uh, I'm a big fan of Richard Feynman and uh, his technique, if you really want to understand something, really break it down to first principles. What is distraction? What is distraction? A lot of people moralize distraction. They medicalize distraction. I really, I really want to say, okay, what is it though? Distraction, if you look at the origin of the word, the best way to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. What's the antonym? What's the opposite of distraction? Most people will say the opposite of distraction is focus, right? Not so much. If you look at the origin of the word distraction, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction, traction and distraction. Both words end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action, reminding us that traction and distraction is an action we take, not something that happens to us. And both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. So traction by definition is any action that pulls you towards what you say you're going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction, distraction, is any action that pulls you further away from what you said you were going to do, further away from your values, further away from becoming the kind of person you're going, you, you know you can become. These are acts of distraction. So this isn't just semantics. This is really important because I would argue that any action can be traction or distraction based on one word. And that one word is forethought, okay? Forethought. That there's nothing morally wrong with spending your time any way you wish, right? If, you know, I'm tired of people saying, oh, social media bad, but me watching football on TV is good. Why? <laughs> Anything you want to do is fine as long as you do it according to your values and your schedule. So if you want to play video games, you want to watch Netflix, you want to go on social media, whatever, do it. Don't be guilty about it. Enjoy it. It's fine. But do it as an act of traction. Do it with forethought, not because you're trying to escape some kind of uncomfortable emotion, right? Because if you don't deal with that discomfort, whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much food, too much football, too much Facebook, you're going to find something to distract you unless you deal with those internal triggers. But if you say, this is what I'm going to do with my time, that's what I plan to do. It's not distraction. It's traction. Enjoy it. Conversely, anything can be distraction. So just because something is a work-related task 
doesn't mean it's not a distraction. In fact, this is the number one most dangerous form of distraction, the distraction that tricks you into not even realizing that you're distracted. And this would happen to me every morning for years. I would get to my desk and I would say, okay, I got to work on that big, important project. Nothing's going to get in my way. I'm going to focus. Uh, I'm not going to get distracted. Uh, I'm not going to procrastinate. Here I go. I'm going to get started right now. But first, let me check some email, right? I just want to sort through that email real quick. Just get that out of the way real quick. Just to, you know, that, that's a productive task. Let, let me do a few things on my to-do list just to get me rolling, right? And I didn't realize that I was justifying these distractions by saying they're work-related tasks. I, I got to do them sometime today, don't I? Well, the fact that I had said I was going to do something else made anything else, even work-related tasks, a distraction. And so what we find is that many people all day long, they're, they're stuck doing what we call reactive work, reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to messages, all day long reacting to stuff and having no time for reflective work. High performers, they make time for that reflective work. They're not driven constantly being told what to do by every ping and ding. They make that time because they realize that just because something is a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. That, in fact, is the worst type of distraction. When, when you analyze that and you think about people understanding, I mean, essentially it's scheduling and making sure that you're getting the task done, but what's you know, entrepreneurs, they would say money-making activities, all right? You know, uh, penny-wise, pound-wise, penny-foolish and stuff like that. If people have to schedule in to organize what they need to do within their day and be efficient at that, how do they go about choosing what's the most important stuff to do? I mean, I know there's a difference in work and social, yeah. so we can identify one and the other. But with work, let's say they've got 10 things that they need to get done over the course of the next two days, and they've got a schedule. There's eight hours in the day, and they can schedule it in. What, as an entrepreneur, to me, it's like there are activities that are valuable to the business, and there are activities that are less valuable. But a lot of people don't behave like that. A lot of people just get kind yeah. of like this big word activity or, or business or stuff or whatever it might be. How do people control that? Yeah. So from an entrepreneur, okay, so let me, let me give the answer for everyone, and then I want to give a specific answer for entrepreneurs. So anyone uh, can use the framework that I provide in Indistractable to look at these three life domains. So what I want you to do when we talk about our future, when we talk about how we want to spend our time, you know, people are fond of uh, vision boards or five-year plans, 10-year plans, regrets of the dying. I'm not a big fan of that. Let's start with tomorrow, okay? How do you want to spend your life tomorrow according to your values? What are values? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. How would the person you want to become spend their time tomorrow? Plan out just one day based on these three life domains. The first life domain is you. If you can't take care of yourself, can't help other people, you can't make the world better. You've got to plan time for yourself. What does that time look like? We all know the importance of sleep. We've heard the research to death. We know we need sleep. We tell our kids, you've got to go to bed and have a bedtime. Do we have a bedtime? <laughs> right? like, we know it's important. We say, oh, how do I wake up earlier? You're going to sleep earlier. Numb nuts. That's what you do. <laughs> we all know this. Got to have a bedtime. Is it in your calendar? Do you have time uh, to read? If reading is one of your values, if, it, if growth and personal enrichment or uh, intellectual growth is important, I'm not saying it has to be, but if it is important to you, do you have time in your schedule? Physical health. You know, we all know we should exercise, right, if, we, if that's one of our values. Do you have it in your schedule or do you do it whenever you feel like it? If it's not in your schedule, it's not going to happen. So we've got to have that time in our schedule for ourselves, you time. Then 
I want you to put time for your relationships. Okay, part of the reason we have a loneliness epidemic in the industrialized world these days is because people don't make time for their most important relationships. They give people whatever scraps of time are left over after everything's done, then they give their friends and family whatever scraps are left. Stop that. Put time in your calendar for the people who matter to you, your children, your spouse, your siblings, your parents. Put time in your calendar to at least call them or, or, or spend some time with them in your week. It's incredibly important. Then we have our last life domain, the work domain. Now work can be divided into two kinds of work. I mentioned them briefly. Reactive work, which is about reacting to various things that are happening in our outside environment, the messages, the emails, the notifications, that's reactive work. And that's part of everybody's day. I understand that. But then we have reflective work. Reflective work is the kind of work that can only be done without distraction. Planning, strategizing, creative work, thinking for God's sakes can only happen without distraction. If you want to have a leg up on everyone in your industry, make time to think. Because the chances are, no matter what industry you're in, almost nobody is doing it. Almost nobody is making time to think because people like to be told what to do. They take comfort, low performers take comfort in every time they feel the uh, internal trigger of uncertainty around what to do, they look at their inbox. Well, Mr. Inbox is gonna tell me what to do. Tell me, tell me, I'll follow you anywhere. Tell me what to do, Inbox, what do I do, right? Or to-do list, tell me what to do with my time. I don't need to think about whether that's actually helping me in my business or my life or my career. Just tell me what to do. People like it, low performers like it. Mm. High performers say, uh-uh. I decide how I spend my life, my attention, and my time. I am indistractable. So what we find across the board is that high performers make time to think. It doesn't have to be all day. It could be 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe an hour. If you don't make time to think, and this is where we get more into the discussion around entrepreneurs, you are going to run real fast in the wrong direction. Okay, look, I've made over 30 angel investments. I've invested in five unicorns, I'm fortunate enough to say. And every time I make an investment, when I look at entrepreneurs that I want to back, I look for one trait. And that trait is the ability to prioritize. That is the CEO's only job. Everything else is details. Your ability to prioritize what comes first, what comes second, what comes third. It is impossible to properly prioritize if you do not make time to think. It has to be on your calendar. Wow, that's really powerful, isn't it? When you think about that, you, that's, I mean, we're going off on subject onto something else when it comes to investing in, in companies because I'm, I'm an angel investor as well. And, and I might not necessarily look at that, but you've really made me think about that for a second. Now, with one, 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 a company I'm about to invest in, I just went all the way through that person in my mind. I'm like, I've got an ability to prioritize. So that's interesting. Okay, so let's, let's go back and then let's dig, dig a bit deeper here. If, if people have got to plan just one day, the next day, I get that. You know, I'm a, I'm a great believer in the whole kind of five, ten-year goal stuff. It's a load of old nonsense. I mean, most people didn't know where they were five years so you, ago. So you can do that too. I'm not saying you can't do that. It's not mutually exclusive. Don't just do that. Okay. <laughs> right? well, I, 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 like I, if you're planning ten years out, but you're not planning tomorrow, you're never going to get to the goal yeah. in ten years. Okay. So I, what I say to everybody is, ninety days is the maximum you should ever plan for. And the reason I say 90 days is I believe that 90 days you can see the finish line. 
it's not so far away. You can see the finish line and then you can work back from your objective and you can plot out what you need to do. Because I think a lot of people um, don't know the actions they need to take to create the result they're looking for. They want the result and they generically know, but they don't know the actual actions they need to take every day. So, you know, I remember many years ago when I was a sales guy, I knew I wanted to hit a certain target. And so I knew I needed a certain amount of deals to be able to hit that target, which meant I needed a certain number of prospects, which means I had a certain number of cold calls I had to make all those years ago. And so I knew every day if I made 21 cold calls, I would hit my target every month. And so all I had to focus on when I got got up in the morning was to get to the office, get those 21 cold calls done. The rest of the day was mine, in in, in essence, because I got what I needed to get done that day. So are you saying the same? There's something very similar and very important in that respect because you were learning what you did is a step that you can actually port over to things that uh, to all sorts of tasks, right? What's brilliant about what you did, and I see this all the time in the sales profession, is that to hit that 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 uh, target, you back into these kind of calculations. Okay, I've got to do my 21 phone calls, and over time you realize how long that takes you, and you crank them out and you do them. You can apply the same logic to all kinds of things, right? How long does it take me to finish a blog post? How long does it take me to finish a presentation? How long does it take me to accomplish anything that I'm looking to accomplish if I have a feedback mechanism, right? What did you do? You made a bunch of calls, you figured out your hit rate, right? What was your close rate? And then you calculated, well, okay, if I need to hit this number and this is my close rate, here's the total number of calls I need to make every day, boom. The only way you could do that was through a feedback mechanism, Mm -hmm. which is why planning the time as you did, you did it in terms of the number of of calls you need to make, but you could do this with any sort of endeavor is so important. And so time boxing does that as opposed to think about what would have happened if on your to-do list every day it said close a million dollars this quarter and then tomorrow close a million dollars this quarter and then the next day close a million dollars this quarter. This is what people do. We put shit on our to-do list like finish my novel. (laughs) <laughs> or uh, start a business, yeah. uh, you know, spend time with my kids. No, it doesn't work that way. You've got to put that time in your calendar. You have to turn your values into time, right? If you want to see what someone's values are, you look at their pocketbook, right? You look at how they spend their money and you look at how they spend their time. There are reason, there's reasons that we use the same terminology. Think about it, right? You make money, just like you make time. You spend money, just like you spend time. You pay attention, just like you pay with dollars and cents. But everyone is so cheap with their money, right? We clip coupons and we look for deals and we split checks, but you can always make more money. You cannot make more time. I don't care if you're Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, you have the same 24 hours in a day. So we should be cheap with our time and generous with our money as opposed to what most people are. Most people are cheap with their money and they're generous with their time. They give it to everybody who wants it. Oh, there's something on Twitter? Here, uh, my, my, my client needs something right now when I'm in the middle of something else important. Uh, whatever, here, 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 take my time. Anybody who wants it, take it, take it, take it. But that's what we should be stingy with because we cannot make more time. Are you worried about food security? Our sponsor, Smartcast, is. And just hear this for a second. If we continue to farm the way we do, we'll not be able to feed the 10 billion people that are going to be on this planet by 2050. Climate change and overpopulations resulted in outdated and unsustainable farming practices, significant price increases, as you know, pesticide contamination, instability in the food supply chain. And what Smartcast do is they seek to eradicate the food problems in the world. They provide food security as a service. It believes food and water should be a basic human right. And I agree with that. 
Smartcast's solution is simple. They design, they build, they own and operate smart farms. And they can feed 10 billion people by 2050 for sure. Go check them out. They're a great sponsor for the podcast. The people behind the company are just an incredible bunch of people. And I'm going to get them on the show for you to learn about what they're doing in due course. I, I, I see a lot of people that are... You know, I, I see this on, on, on social media in particular, people giving away, constantly giving away time to, to be involved in anything that's free so that they can get some form of, you know, tra- traction somewhere. You know, you know uh, when lockdown started a couple of years ago, we had this Clubhouse thing that started. And so people were on Clubhouse. And I, I went on Clubhouse. The first day I went on Clubhouse and I lost four hours of my life. <laughs> and I, I literally was gone. And I was like, what, what the hell happened there? And it was lunchtime, yeah. 8, 8 a.m. until lunchtime. And I was like... Yeah. And then you I went. Could have finished the book I, in yeah, four no. hours. Well, I, I, I literally, I, I went the next day and I started asking people, "Were you on here all day yesterday?" And they're like, "Yeah." And I'm like, "Why? That's crazy!" You know? Oh, well, I'm trying to bring some value to people and stuff like that. And I'm like, "Wow, man, that's just nuts!" Because you can lose so much time. That yeah, yeah. there's research. Now, now there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Like if you say, if you if you looked at it and you said, you know what? That's a good use of my time. I want to spend time this way. Hey, I'm not going to tell you not to, right? Like, it's not up to me or anyone else to moralize this kind of behavior. If you want to watch television all day, if you want to play video games all day, you know, people do make money playing video games for a living. I'm not going to tell you that that's a waste of time. But again, do it with intent, with forethought. Decide in advance. Yep, I'm going to spend four hours on Clubhouse. That's what I want to do with my time. That's according to my values. Then enjoy it. As opposed to, ah, crap, what do I, what do I just do, right? <laughs> now you regret it. And what I'm trying to do with Indistractable is to help people not look back on their days, their months, their, their life and say, "Ugh, I regret how I spent my time. Okay, so in simple, in simple terms, tomorrow, okay, let's say, say we've, we've, anyone's listening to this, this will come out next week. When it comes out, tomorrow, okay, you're going to do what, what, what Nair has said to do. Now, they've got to schedule everything that they need to do that day. So they've got to start their day once they get up and they've got to put it into a schedule and make sure that they allocate time for each of those activities they need to do. Is that correct? Well, so yeah, so we'll start with one day. You you may not do a weekday. Maybe you say a weekend, okay? People find scheduling weekends is is, uh, uh, easier to do Uh, as as a first step. Okay, okay. Uh, So for example, when I plan time with my daughter, uh, I, I plan big, Piece, big chunks of time with her, uh, we call it planned spontaneity, right? We may not know what we're going to do with our time. We may go to the park. We may go to the library. We may go get some ice cream. We don't know. But I've reserved that time for her. Why? So I know what I will not be doing, right? I will not be on social media. I will not be checking email. I will not be making work phone calls. I had that time scheduled for her, right? Because I, I want to live out my values of being an available father. So I would say start with planning that one-day week, time boxing it, and making trade-offs. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have to say, I want to do this, and I, and I want to do that, but I have to decide how much time I spend between the two. But that, that's actually step number two. Making time for traction is step number two. Step number one is mastering internal triggers. And so this is where you have to learn a toolkit to deal with that discomfort that drives you towards distraction. So that's step mm-hmm. number one. You need to have those arrows in your quiver so that when you feel boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety, do you reach for a drink? Do you reach for the remote control? Do you reach for your phone? Do you reach for actions that you later regret that are unhealthy distractions? Or do you use that discomfort to propel you like rocket fuel towards traction? So that's actually step number one. Then step number two is making time for traction by turning your values into time. You you talk about discomfort. I I, I think Mm -hmm. discomfort's a gentle word for people then to to do the opposite. I think that the, the, the response to 
you know, you see someone that's, that, that, that's down on their luck, they get to a point and it's just everything's going against them and they get to the point where it's like, no more, I can't do this anymore, I can't suffer this anymore, now it's time to change and, and take action in the right direction. Is, is it... Oh. It's not quite so severe. I think this is what everyone experiences all the time. Okay. Uh, you, me, everyone, we feel boredom. We feel loneliness. We feel stress. We feel anxiety. This is why we get distracted 90% of the time. If you find yourself doing something you didn't intend to do, uh, it's because of a feeling, right? Who doesn't know that if you want to lose weight and be healthy, you have to exercise and eat right? Does anybody not know that? No. But why don't we do it? Because we don't feel like it. I don't feel like going to the gym right now. I don't feel like eating the healthy salad as opposed to the the, the potato chips, right? Uh, why, why do we not work on that big project that we know we have to do to move our career forward? I don't really feel like it, right? Uh, why do we not? Uh, why, why do we check our phones in the middle of hanging out with family when we want to be fully present with people? Because I'm trying to escape something. You know, this is I don't like it, so I'm trying to escape that discomfort with some kind of distraction. Realizing that this is the root cause of our distractions is critical. And this isn't something that, you know, a small portion of the population experiences. Everyone does this. Look, every product you use, every product you use, you use for one reason only, and that is the desire to escape some kind of discomfort, to modulate your mood. So if you are overusing a product or using a product as a distraction, right, to escape some kind of discomfort, it behooves you to know what is that discomfort that you're escaping, right? What is that thing that you are having trouble, di uh, difficulty uh, coping with in a healthy fashion, in a way that leads you towards traction rather than distraction, and then having steps in place so that you know when you feel that urge, when you feel that itch, when you feel that desire to give in to that distraction, you know what to do about it so that it doesn't get the best of you. You've worked with some big companies over the over the years. You've done some incredible work. Where did this journey start for you? How did it happen? Well, so for me, it's, it, it depends how far back you want to go. <laughs> um, so I, 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 you know, I, my uh, previous company was in the gaming and advertising space. Uh, we started that back in in two thousand and eight, uh, and then sold it in two thousand twelve. And many of my clients were in the uh, were you know companies that were just starting to, to hit their stride in the social media space. So I was in Silicon Valley at the right time and place, and that's where I learned many of these techniques. Is you know m many of my clients and friends were working at these companies, and so I, I could kind of steal their secrets to understand what they what they do and how they do it. Um, but even I would say probably farther back than that, um, when I was uh, a kid, I was clinically obese. Um, so, you know, as, as, as long as I remember as, as a kid, I, I, I grew up in central Florida and, uh, we, I grew up in a condominium complex where we had a one pool and, and everybody in the neighborhood could use that one pool. And I remember I was always the kid that wore a t-shirt in the pool cause I didn't want anyone to see my roles. And I was always very self-conscious about my weight. And I, I remember feeling like food controlled me and, uh, I didn't like that feeling. And, uh, I kind of, you know, I, 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 for a while I blamed the food, you know, I would blame McDonald's, I would blame the Cheetos, I would blame the Twinkies. And, uh, and then I learned about this, this concept, I, 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 I think it was in early high school, I took this class on peer counseling, and we learned about internal versus external locus of control, and how people who have an uh, external locus of control, meaning that they feel like things happen to them, versus people who have an internal locus of control. By the way, it has no uh, it doesn't matter what the objective truth is. 
This is about perception. So people who perceive that things happen to them versus who perceive that they have agency to do something about their circumstances, the people who have an internal locus of control do way better in life, like across the board in, in every conceivable metric. Uh, they're wealthier, they're healthier, they live longer, they're every, everything that, that you could want in life they the people who have an internal locus of control do better again it regardless of their circumstance you can have two people in the exact same circumstance someone with an internal locus of control is going to do better and I, I remember that kind of being a turning point like understanding how that works and um as a kid i i uh i, I read up on you know nutrition i didn't you know i grew up in the 80s back when like we had apple jacks for breakfast which was basically candy for, for breakfast lunch and dinner um and uh I started learning about health and, and, and like, you know, what, what I was putting in my body. And, and thank goodness I, I managed to catch myself at, at uh, uh, a relatively early age. But I remember like that fight, that struggle to lose weight um, and to, to kind of uh, get healthy. And then I, I, you know, I still struggle with my weight today. I'm, I'm, I'm in better shape than I ever was in my life. But I've kind of gone on these, you know, very common in people in the, uh, who, who have struggled with, with obesity uh, you know, we go through these patches because fundamentally it's, it's also an emotional issue, right? I, I wish I could tell you it was McDonald's fault. It wasn't, <laughs> I, I wasn't eating because of McDonald's. I was eating my feelings. Mm. I was eating when I was bored. I was eating when I was lonely. I was eating when I felt ashamed around the fact that I had eaten so much, yeah. <laughs> right? So it was this terrible shame spiral. And I think that's probably looking back. I don't think I had as much, uh, insight as I do now, uh, you know, having studied, obsessions and addictions and habits for so long. Uh, but that's probably where this fascination started. Wow. And then, I mean, that's really interesting to see that, that you'd, gone, you'd gone on that journey. Where did, where, did, where did that then start for you trying to understand this from a professional capacity then? Were you, while you were working in Silicon Valley, just noticing these types of behaviors and understanding it and saying, hold on a minute, I'm trying to put two and two together here and I'm coming up with some answers. Or was it before then that you decided to kind of look into this space deeply? Well, so it was uh, specifically, it was around uh, when my last company was acquired, I thought I wanted to start another company. And I had a pretty strong thesis that uh, the companies of the future, this was 2012. So the iPhone was what, all of four years old at the time. And I had a, a pretty strong viewpoint that the, the companies that would make an impact in the future uh, would be the ones that build habits, uh, that I could see that as the interface was shrinking from desktop to laptop screens to mobile device screens to wearable device screens like the Apple Watch and to now, you know, with the Amazon Alexa, the screens have all disappeared, <laughs> right, with these auditory interfaces, which means that uh, the ability to um, uh, trigger people to action with external trigger, with visual cues, has shrunk. There's just less real estate to tell people what to do on a screen as we use more devices with smaller screens or even no screens now. So what does that mean? That means that habits become more important because, uh, you know, on a home screen of a phone, if you're not on that home screen, if your app's not on that first page, you may as well not exist. The customer's going to forget about you unless they form a habit. So I knew that habits were going to be a, 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 a a, a way to yield a competitive advantage, right? There's all kinds of sustainable competitive advantages. You can have intellectual property, you can have economies of scale, you can have uh, brand. Habit is one of those sources of competitive advantage. Think about Google. Google has 90% market share, 90% market share. But are they a monopoly? I'm not talking about the ad side. I'm talking about the consumer side. Not really. There's 
Bing, there's DuckDuckGo, there's a million search engines. Why do we Google things every day? It's purely a monopoly of the mind, mm. right? We Google it with little or no conscious thought. We don't even ask whether the competition has a better product. We just use it. So I knew that habits were going to be increasingly important, and I wanted to find a book on, okay, I want to start another company. How do you build a habit-forming product? Where is the book? Show me the book on how to do it. And I couldn't find such a book. So I started blogging about it and researching it and speaking with experts about it and talking to many of my friends who worked at the world's most habit-forming products, right? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, Slack, Snapchat, all these companies were in, you know, I knew people at these companies. And so I kind of stole their secrets and uh, put it into my blog. And then my blog became my first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And then five years later, I found myself very distracted uh, by some of these products. And my knee-jerk reaction was to blame the products. Oh, my God. You know, I got, I, I, uh, the, the, these techniques are used to hook people in a, in a nefarious way. Now we need to get unhooked. And I thought that was going to be the original premise of my book, my second book. But it just wasn't true that I found that the more I researched the psychology of distraction, I couldn't stand behind that claim that it's the technology doing it to us. And I think people who are serious about this field, if you talk to academics, they'll tell you this stuff around technology hijacking your brain and addicting people is, is utter nonsense, that it's much deeper than just the proximal cause, just whatever device we're using. We've always been distracted. Plato talked about distraction 2,500 years ago before the internet. Uh, so it's not technology that's distracting us. But if you are looking for distraction, it's easier than ever to find. And the world will become more potentially distracting. Um, so, so that's why I didn't write unhooked. I wrote indistractable. So hooked is about how do you build good habits using technology. And indistractable is about how do you break those bad habits. You created that word, didn't you? Indistractable, yeah. yeah. <laughs> how did you come up with it? Oh, you know, it's funny. Uh, finding a book title is one of the my least favorite parts of being an author. And I probably spent, I don't know how many hours, a good chunk of the time writing the book, maybe like 50, maybe not quite 50, 50, but probably 25% of the time I spent on the book was spent thinking of what the damn title would be. <laughs> and I, I finally came up with Indistractable because I wanted it to sound like a superpower. I wanted it to be an identity, right? I am indistractable. Indistractable is supposed to sound like indestructible. Um, so it's, it's, it's meant to be a moniker. Part of, uh, part of the technique, one of the techniques I talk about in the book is this idea of an identity pact, that there's some very fascinating uh, research around uh, what happens when people have a moniker that they use to describe themselves. So when someone says that you know, they're a devout Muslim, they become much more likely to, uh, to, to conform to that identity. When someone says they're a devout Christian or whatever it is, they're much more likely to not have to debate with themselves about what to do. It's who they are. Take a vegetarian, for example. If someone's a vegetarian, they don't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, I wonder if I should have a bacon sandwich for breakfast. No, they are vegetarian. It is who they are. Mm -hmm. So the same goes for being indistractable, right? If you call yourself indistractable, you're the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do. You're the kind of person who is as honest with themselves as they are with other people. Uh, you're the kind of person who does what they say they're going to do. Uh, and so that's, that's really uh, the, the idea behind the term. Any, any... By the way, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you never get distracted, right? That's, I, I made up the word so I can define it any way I want. doesn't mean you never get distracted. I still get distracted from time to time, but here's the difference. An indistractable person knows why they got distracted and they do something about it, right? Poelo Coelho has a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So distractible people 
keep getting distracted by the same things again and again. How many times are we going to be distracted by Facebook? How many times? <laughs> like, okay, once, twice, three times. We're going to keep blaming Zuckerberg for our problems when we don't do anything about it? So distractible people love being victims. They want to say, well, what can I do, right? Uh, okay, nothing I can do about it. It's his, it's his fault. He's doing it to me, right? Indistractable people say, oh, okay, you got me once, but you're not going to get me again. I'm going to do something today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. The secrets within the book, I believe for a company to adopt those principles and for everybody to follow the principles turns a business into, let's say, a decent business into essentially a, a, a superpower in its industry. Because if you can create that within that workforce of everybody being able to behave like that, you just turn everybody into turbocharged professionals, don't you? There is a big part of it, and I, I profile a few companies that I would call indistractable companies. I profile uh, Slack and the Boston Consulting Group as companies. So Slack has always been, funny enough, it's a, it's, a, it's a company that produces a technology that people say is so distracting. But at Slack, you don't find that. Uh, I, I knocked on their door, and I demanded to see you know, how they work because you would think, hey, if it's the technology that's distracting people. And by the way, group messaging is the second most uh, distracting technology on surveys. Number one is email. Number two is group messaging, specifically Slack, because Slack is the biggest uh, player in the market. People complain about how distracting it is. So you would expect if technology is the problem, well, then nobody sh would be more distracted than the people who make Slack. They should be the most distracted people on earth. But that's not what I found. That in fact, at Slack, if you use Slack on nights and weekends, you are reprimanded. You are told that's not what we do here. That inside the company headquarters, I saw in big, bright, pink, neon letters, they have a huge sign in the company canteen that says, work hard and go home. It's part of the company culture. They know, Stuart Butterfield, the CEO on down, knows that you do your, people do their best work when they work without distraction. So it's part of the company culture. And I, I, so that's a company that I think has always been uh, indistractable. And the Boston Consulting Group, my former employer, uh, that's a company that when I used to work there was incredibly distractible. And they had a huge turnaround. By the way, when I worked there, they had incredible employee turnover, uh, very low employee satisfaction. Now they've really turned the place around. They've increased uh, employee retention. Uh, they uh, uh, employee satisfaction is through the roof. They were recently named one of the best companies in America to work for. And they really changed. They became this indistractable workplace. And I profile how they did that as well. That's really interesting because BCG, along with Booz, along with McKinsey, have, have traditionally had that kind of uh, almost like you go join a law firm and you, you know, until you make partner life shit and you've got to do many hours and, you know, you're a slave to the business. And then eventually you make partner and all of a sudden it becomes justifiable. But that's a long old journey to get there. And so right. you see that kind of stuff. And, and people didn't do their best work. It's not just yeah. about uh, work-life balance. There would be people, uh, you know, I remember people who didn't have families, didn't want work-life balance. They just wanted the headspace to think, you know, <laughs> you, as a consultant, you have to come up with, with creative ideas, right? You can't just regurgitate old stuff. You, you have to actually come up with innovative uh, ideas in order to win new business. And people were spread so thin and so distracted that they didn't have the time and, and headspace to actually think. And so they, they've really made strides, uh, not only in terms of the work output, but they also found when they became indistractable uh, is that they, they, they solved this cultural problem that elicited more good ideas from the organization. Here's why. The problem of distraction in the workplace is caused by the fact that we can't talk about the problem of distraction in the workplace. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's the fact that we keep this in the closet, that people are too scared to say, hey, 
I'm not doing my best work if I can't work for 30 minutes without constant interruption, right? It's, that is the problem. If you can't talk about the problem, what BCG found is that there were all kinds of other skeletons in the closet that people didn't want to talk about. So when they gave people what's called psychological safety, this concept by Amy Edmondson at Harvard, the, the psychological safety to talk about this problem, not only did they fix the problem of distraction, that was an easy one to solve. They, they figured out they had all these other problems that people weren't talking about. And by talking about it, they could fix these other issues as well. It's good to see that that's happened for sure, for sure. Wow. Look, I'm, I'm conscious of time. I know that uh, you gave us an hour and we're running out of time fairly soon. Your book's on Amazon. Your book's in all good bookstores. You have an audio book as well, which people can listen to. What's coming up? Are you, what's your next project? What are you working on that's going to excite our audience for the future? Oh, I wish I knew. If anybody has any ideas, please let me know. Uh, you know, I, I, I tend to take about five years between books, and so I'm, I'm, I've got a, a bunch of different ideas, but uh, no, no direct plans yet. I wish I could tell you. I don't, I don't know yet. <laughs> but uh, I do blog every week on my blog, nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, so N-I-R and far.com. So uh, I do blog around these topics of habit-forming products, distraction, habits. Uh, so do, do check that out. Okay, good stuff. Everyone listening and watching this right now, do yourselves a favor. Give me a follow, first of all. Secondly, reach out to him. Introduce yourself to him. Tell him about your business. Tell him about what you're up to. If he's got time, I'm sure he'll be happy to engage with you and, uh, and answer any questions that you've got. Nir, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. It's a genuine pleasure. And if I honestly, if I had three hours, I'd just send it, spend it talking to you and going through the, all this stuff you know <laughs> because you're a world of wisdom. Them and, I'm, and I was gen genuinely, because I've, I've read a couple of books that I, have meant nothing to me and I've read many books that have meant something to me and I've read a few books that meant a lot to me uh, and, and your book Indistractable certainly meant that and I can't thank you enough for putting it together. Oh, you're too kind. I really appreciate that. That means a lot to me. That's like catnip for authors. So thank you so much for saying that. That's, uh, you made my day. <laughs> oh, you're more than welcome. Great. Thank you so much for your time and uh, we'll see you again soon. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries, Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon. 
having a guest who has done so much research on understanding what distracts us, what gets in the way of us doing the things that we need to do to get where we need to go is really, really valuable. Hopefully you've taken a lot from this. Maybe go back and listen to it again and make notes. For whatever you do, go and get his book. It's really, really valuable. It's well worth a read. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, you can click over there where you'll be able to get other episodes or you can click over there where you'll be able to subscribe. Cush you nothing, but every time I produce content, it's coming there thick and fast and you're going to get it first. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I can't wait to catch you on the next episode and boy, have we got some crackers coming on the show soon. We'll see you soon.